0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: On to episode Neural Material. Material. Neural Dropping a deuce. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Welcome to So Minute White, guys. And I'm your host, Phoebe Robinson. Okay. That's Joanna. I can hear you say okay. Did you say okay? guys Hey, hey hey! welcome to so many white guys from wnyc studios i'm your host phoebe Robinson. you lovely llc listeners of color are tuned into the second episode of my second season as always i'm joined by the maven from minnesota the white robin quivers she's as smart as a whip and we are happy to have her oh
2: my god she's louise phoebe <laughs>
1: Geez Louise, Joni, you got to learn how to take a compliment. You got to learn how to receive the good.
2: Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, don't you get shy like when people give you compliments? Don't you just kind of feel like you want to like shake it off? But then you think about it later and you smile. But you don't take it at the time because you don't want people to think you're a braggard.
1: Wait, what, what's that word?
2: A braggard.
1: Braggard? Braggard? <laughs> Say Mick. Ah! <laughs> say say Mick Jagger. No,
2: I'm not doing this. Say it. Say it. Please. Why not? No. Um. So, PD, you know what was really great about this interview is that I Jagger. Loved you with Lena
1: Dunham. I know, but you know what I really want? I want to talk to Mick Jagger. Do you think Mick Jagger would want to be our token? Like. Oh, literally just want to like push your microphone over right now oh no don't destroy the equipment but for real for real getting back to your whole query about compliments i do think for a long time it did take me a while to get used to i used to get embarrassed by it but you know what I feel like life is all about personal growth, and like now I'm in a place where I can accept compliments. I mean, there were a lot of things that I couldn't do when I was younger.
0: Yeah.
1: I felt embarrassed by so many things when I was younger, like getting boobs, I felt so embarrassed about, like oh my getting God. my first bra. That was
2: horrible. <sighs> yeah. What was your first experience like of getting a bra?
1: My mom and I, I noticed I was starting to get little nubbins on my chest because I love to sleep on my stomach. And so I was like, Mom, this is so annoying. (laughs) And so she was like, we got to get you a training bra. And so we went to the mall. I want to say we, like, went to Dillard's or, like, JCPenney. And we just—I was, like, a 32 double A. That's,
2: like, my size now. Do you have any oldies laying around? Some
1: hand-me-downs? Yeah. Wait, what about you?
2: I went to— macy's with my mom and i didn't know what to do or what to get cute so i kept like picking up these bras that like to be fair were for like grown women right had a cup like <laughs> red lacy and would be like what about this one because i just wanted to feel normal and like that's what i saw right. on tv and my mom was like don't be ridiculous. And then she kept leading me to the, like, peach-colored fabric bras, and I was, like, so embarrassed, and I think I maybe at one point sat down in the fitting room and started crying.
1: Aww. It was bad. <laughs> I mean, I feel like now I'm at a 34A, which is the biggest I've ever been, and I'm really excited about this journey.
2: We're almost the same size.
1: Hell yeah. yeah.
2: So, yeah, anyway, ugh, the Lena Dunham interview, though, it just was, like, to me, it felt like a hardcore visit to, like, adolescence, high school, junior high, you guys, like, got into it. And one thing that we all have in common, Mm -hmm. you mean, Lena, we all went to private school.
1: Yeah, we both come from, like, different backgrounds. And we've reached across the aisle and become really close friends or bosom buddies. Yeah. You know? And I think that the country needs more of that. It needs more of people from different walks of life, finding common ground, and then building relationships out of that, which leads us to our soon-to-be fan-fave segment called Across the Aisle, a segment that I do with our executive producer, Lana Glazer, in which we talk about things that everyone can get on board, no matter your station and life.
2: That transition was killer, thieves.
1: Thanks. Across the
0: Aisle. Across the Aisle. We may be different, but what do we have in common? so, something that we can all agree on is how good it feels when you dip your hand wrist deep mm-hmm. in a basket or barrel of dry beans at the market. Wait, what? You ever do that?
1: I'm pretty sure you're like not supposed to do that.
0: Yeah, but it's not it's not harmful and it feels so good. Have you ever done it? No. You're you're going wrist deep? Wrist deep? With your hands, one hand, one hand. Don't make me sound like a monster. (sighs) It feels so good, Phoebe. If you haven't done it, which I'm sure some of our listeners—they have have not—I swear on my life, they haven't.
1: Don't look at me like that. This is not a bipartisan
0: sitch. You gotta try it. You gotta try it. It feels so good. It's so soothing. Mm -hmm. It's it's almost like a different element. I'm not on land. Mm -hmm. I'm not on earth. I'm submerged in beans. Dry beans. You know what? I think we should just
1: just like call it early on this. Okay. Segment.
0: Okay. Let's just call it early. I'm going to come back next week and I'll give you something that you yeah, can relate to. Yeah. But I do urge you. You yeah. know what? I'm sending you a bottle of freaking beans. You're going to thank me,
1: guys. Please do not do this. You will get thrown out of Whole Foods. Like, do not do this.
0: But it is like cheap to buy whole beans, and I would suggest that you buy them responsibly and dip your freaking hand in.
2: Was she talking about beans?
1: Yeah. What did you think she was saying? Like, peens?
2: I mean, if the shoe fits. Oh, my God. That's, like, not so off-brand.
1: She would not be talking about dipping her hand into dry peens.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Thieves.
1: Yes, Johnny Mitch?
2: We got to get to the sponsors.
1: Okay. Sure. Whatever you say.
2: What?
1: Yeah, I'm agreeable. What do you mean? Really? Yeah, let's do it. Oh,
2: my God. Okay.
1: Wow. See, I can be nice when I want to. <laughs> Today, you guys, for real, for real, I swear on my life when I say this, we have a very special guest in the house, and you're going to love this episode. I'm talking about Lena Dunham. Oh, my God. You guys, this is season two. We're getting those hard to get guests. It's amazing. So I'm sure when you hear her name, a lot came to mind, you know, like certainly controversial, groundbreaking, boss, prolific, talented, huge influencer of pop culture, feminist, and so on and so on. I mean, she makes movies. She is the creator and the co star of the iconic show for HBO called Girls. Which is in their sixth and final season. I know you love girls, Joe. I do me? love
2: girls. Yeah. I know I'm bummed out at ending.
1: And in her spare time, you know, no biggie. She just wrote like a New York Times best selling book. Like, not to brag, but come the fuck on. That's incredible. And she's not done. Okay. She also has a wildly successful newsletter called Lenny. Great resource for young women to like read letters written by people like Amanda P who talks about aging and just really have these conversations that a lot of women can't have in mainstream media without getting racked on. And then on top of that, you guys, just when you thought Lena was done, she has her own podcast as well called Women of the Hour. Wow. So like, Let's get into it. Let's make like Ted dancing on CSI. Put on some gloves and glasses and get to work, bitch. It's an honor to be here with you. Oh, Lena, that's so sweet of you. Thank you. You look great. Um, so nice of you to say. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's you never know what people you only see them on TV. Yeah. And then you see them in person for the first time. It's either like great. Or it's, like, you're surprised, but you're surprised in a way where you're like, oh, I was just an asshole and I thought this person was going to like crap. Or it's a disappointment.
3: Yeah, well, you know what I, mean? I feel like one thing I feel lucky about is that my TV show is not about me looking glamorous. So yeah. everyone is always, like, pleasantly excited to meet me. <laughs> like, I've never had a reaction of, like, oh, I thought you'd be thinner or I thought you'd be taller. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, I thought you'd be, like, 50 pounds heavier. And, oh, like, my God. So because my <laughs> character, like, dresses not yeah. in a way that's so flattering and, like, she's often making some, like, pretty – upsetting fashion choices and so like if i just show up in like a sweater and leggings i'm like already winning and like beating your expectations (laughs) and that's like a great situation to be in yeah (laughs) yeah i like the sweater it's very cute thank you so much just by showing up like in something that vaguely resembles cashmere i have surprised you (laughs) you did and excited you on the show it's a lot of where i'm always like oh that's a choice i wouldn't have made with that shirt no i mean i always say hannah's like not just the sale rack at Urban Outfitters, but, like, the rack that's, like, this is five years old. It has a hole in it. And, like, we will throw it in the garbage if you don't take it today. Like, she, that's her choices. Yeah. And then she'll, like, find something, like, really fun in her mom's closet that's actually not fun at all. But, like, what I do give her props for is, like, commitment and, like, mm-hmm. really having her own style. Like, yeah. she's not ever being swayed. By the larger populace, it's all about her look and she knows what she wants, even if it's not what's right for her.
1: Yeah, But that's so many people. Like when I look back on how I used to dress years ago, especially like when I moved to New York and moved to when I was 17 from Ohio, I would like buy tourist T-shirts. I would buy like I love New York and then like wear that around. I thought that was a Excellent fashion choice. I get it. I remember there was a phase where, like, buying, like, shirts on
3: Canal Street and, like, cutting the sleeves off and, like, wearing it with a little skirt. (laughs) And guess what? People still had sex with me, so go figure.
1: So take that, everybody. Yeah. So this is clearly our first time meeting. And we had one interaction on Twitter when you mentioned my book. And I wrote, like, thanks, boo. Um, And I was like,
3: oh, my God, you called me boo. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And that was it. But even though we've, like, never really hung out before, we do have, like, a lot in common. And. I think, like, a very obvious commonplace is that we both talk about things that are, like, NSFW. Like, we talk a lot about, like, sex. And I know what I get out of it. Like, what do you get out of just being so just raw and talking about it all? I feel like my experience
3: has always just been that, like— If I'm not talking about an experience, I'm privately torturing myself and trying to understand, like, am I normal? Am Mm. does this make me some kind of alien who's not meant to be a part of the larger population? And I think (laughs) when I started talking publicly about my experiences is when I realized they were not, in fact, so special or unusual. Mm -hmm. They match the experiences of many people, many women who connected on, like, a very visceral level to the things I was talking about, whether it was, like, hey, I thought sex was going to be this, like, magical mystery tour, and it's actually, like, a hellhole nightmare for me, (laughs) or whether it's talking about the challenges of, like, having a female body and how that doesn't always work great all the time, or, Mm -hmm. like, the societal pressure to look a certain way, or all of those things that tortured me privately. It's so much more fun to be in a public dialogue about them. Even when there's backlash, I'd so much rather feel like I was part of, like, a collective of passionate women than feel alone. I'm down for people to think anything about me. I took a toilet selfie off of Instagram, and everyone thought that I was, like, doing it because I was, like, upset about people's comments, but really I was just upset because everyone was like, are you shitting? And I was like, no, I'm clearly peeing. (laughs) Like, I just couldn't deal with the idea that people would look at it and think of me pooping like that was the stress for me yeah does that make you feel like you have to self censor or I'm the worst at self censoring like mm-hmm. I like truly never learn a lesson like yeah. everything like I really try but like everything yeah. I've ever gotten in trouble for I've gotten in trouble for over and over and over again and what I've learned is the crazy part it's like I'll have a dialogue, I'll learn, and then I'll really think I'm coming at it from a different perspective Mm -hmm. and then I'll get in trouble again. So that shows that I'm either like oblivious to criticism or the stupidest woman in the world Mm. or somehow managing to like shelter myself from all of this angry feedback. But like, I honestly thought when I put the picture up, I was like, it's so like adorable to just be peeing, like to be so like downtown and free and just like peeing. (laughs) And I was like, and it shows less of my body than like a bathing suit shot, so who cares? Right. And then it was like the implication that a woman is like, Using one of her bodily systems is, like, too upsetting to anybody. Right.
1: Yeah, and it was great that you replaced it with the iconic, I guess, you can use. With, I, I don't want to mock it with quotes, but it's, like, in the history of things, it's not iconic. It's not. But, but to
3: me, Jenny right. McCarthy on the toilet for candies is iconic. Yeah. And I realize she is supposed to look like she's shitting because she's reading a newspaper. Right. <laughs> but, um,
1: but I do want to go back to you saying that you feel like you learn lessons, but, like, your behavior kind of stays the same. Yeah, right. What do you think is the blockage that's happening that doesn't allow you to absorb whatever information that you received in a way that will inform your decisions going forward?
3: Well, it's an interesting thing. I'll hit it from a couple angles. One is things like that toilet selfie. Like I've had plenty of times where I've put up a picture that's like scandalized people or given me angst for a few days. And then... It's still really hard for me when I have the instinct to Mm -hmm. express myself to hold back in any way. And I'm like, is that bravery? Is that compulsive? Is that just not being able to, like, absorb your experiences? I don't know. Part of it is also, I think, the part of me that is, like, when people say no, I say yes. Like, Mm -hmm. there is, like, an internal voice in me that's, like, when people try to— stop me. I want to go harder. And I've been that way since I was like two years old. It's not like a result of being in the public eye. It's just a result of like the way that I behave. Like my mom would be like, don't cut your bangs. And I'd be like, not only am I going to cut my bangs, I'm going to cut all my hair off with a craft (laughs) scissor. Like it was just always taking it one step further. I also think when you're a public figure, people do not want to let you grow. Like they Mm -hmm. do not want to let you receive information and change your behavior. Like they're very, very excited to have created an arena for you Mm -hmm. or I mean arena is too big a term like a box for you and that's where you live and that's so it's interesting like sometimes when I'll get in trouble for saying something that people think is in some way culturally insensitive I'll look at it and I'll go I completely understand if this had been me five years ago I wouldn't have understood now I'm responding to you with like a considered thoughtful response that comes from reading I've done and interactions I've had but The culture of Twitter and the culture of Instagram and the culture of, like, immediate social media feedback does not want to necessarily create space for someone who's, like, growing, changing, and learning. Like, they're just, like, you again, bitch. And it's, like, I'm actually evolving as a person, but most of the people who are criticizing me aren't paying close enough attention to know that, Mm -hmm. and most of the people who are criticizing me aren't actually reading my work or reading Lenny Letter or looking at the ways that I've tried to, for example, like— More deeply understand intersectional feminism or more deeply understand certain aspects of the male experience that maybe I dismissed Mm -hmm. when I first started making my work or just have tried to like evolve as an activist and a social thinker and a person.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up like cultural insensitivity and like intersectionality because people are really starting to recognize the importance of intersectionality uh, finally. And um, I know that earlier this year there was a little bit of uh, kerfuffle Around the Lenny letter conversation um, with you and Amy, yep, yeah, a about- little bit of an
3: Odell Beckham Jr. Right. He and I are great now. We dated for six months. It ended, but really well. No, I'm joking. Oh, uh, I was but- like, oh shit. Okay. <laughs> no, no. I obvi- like I apologized to him, yeah. and I tried, and I'll never know if I succeeded to explain that I understood in mm-hmm. a way that was hopefully would be resonant for people. But the fact is, is most of the people who are were angry weren't in the mood to get on angry. Right. And I understand that. And I'm yeah. not like making myself a victim. I'm just sort of describing the reality of the situation. Yeah.
1: And I think some of the anger, from what I understood, doesn't have anything to do with you specifically, but more of the historical context of, yeah. of America in which society has created this sort of truth, if you will, air quotes, that uh, white women are to be desired by every man of every racial group and that Black men, Latino men above anyone else, they should want to be with a white woman. They want to fuck every single white woman they see. So I think your conversation was read as, oh, this is this white woman mad that a black guy wasn't attracted to her. A hundred percent. And I think you're growing. And you're definitely, like, you know, processing information. But I think, you know, sometimes it's very—as a black woman, it's very bothersome because it is like, well, come on. Like, that's not what he was doing. I mean, obviously I wasn't there. But it it just feels like uh, there was this sort of assumption that he was going to behave a certain way to you because of your whiteness. And when it didn't happen, if you were like, oh, well, that was weird as opposed to, like, no, that's just a person doing his own thing, you know? That makes— so much sense and I was able I
3: think to really understand and hopefully quickly that that was the perception for me it's like I'm not saying that this is in any way an excuse like I moved through the world feeling very awkward feeling awkward in like Hollywood spaces feeling awkward in spaces where I'm like I mean literally I was at a table with like the Hadid sisters Kendall Jenner Beyonce Mm -hmm. Rihanna like it was like a table of like notably beautiful women I'm like sitting there I'm like 10 inches shorter and a billion pounds heavier than everybody else and i'm just having the experience of being like a self-conscious girl around what i consider to be like a hot desirable athlete and like so that was projecting my own insecurity i hadn't understood the way that it fed into like a very dark history of you know like black men being lynched for you know not responding to white women in the way that white women felt that they were supposed to be responded to so it's like I understood the minute that that was pointed out to me what the issue was, but it was like I wasn't seeing myself as in a position of power, and it took me a second to understand, like, oh, in that context, I actually do have a specific kind of power. Like, I was seeing myself as, like, the chubby 14-year-old that I am inside of myself and not the person who is a cultural figure who has the power to say something that could be, like, hurtful and destructive. So, you know, in those situations, like, truly— all you can do is grow and apologize. And the fact is, is like some people don't care if you grow and some Mm -hmm. people don't care if you understand. And some people do, and that's really nice too. And you can't be angry at people who don't want to continue to like follow you on your journey. One thing I'll say is like I'm never mad and I never feel victimized when people point out that they've been like injured in some way Mm -hmm. by my behavior. Like from the beginning of girls, when people were talking about The diversity issue, I was always, always, always like, this is an important conversation. And if we're going to be the show that starts this conversation, then great. I truly don't feel like I deserve like a certain kind of pass for my feminism or for my politics. I feel like, like everyone else, I should be held to a very, very like high standard, uh, specifically because I also consider myself an activist of like political awareness and thought and – I do my best to hold myself to that standard. But, like, when you're living your life in the public eye and you're learning and you're learning, like, you will fuck up and you will yeah. fall down. And the only power you have is to, like, apologize and keep moving.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think with girls, I think part of it is because, I mean, your show was not, by far not the first show to represent in New York where it was mostly white. You know, for instance, shows like Saxon City or Seinfo where they were, like, Upper East Side, Upper West Side's. At least somewhat conceivable that it's going to be like they're only going to hang around white people. But I think with girls, it felt like because it's taking place in Brooklyn, which is really a
3: diversified borough, very,
1: very diverse. And I think people of color outnumber white people there.
3: Except in my neighborhood, which is only very elderly Jews. Wait, what neighborhood? Are you in Greenpoint? No, I live in Brooklyn Heights, which is like literally just where Jewish people go to die. (laughs) And I have
1: joined them. (laughs) I like Brooklyn Heights. Um, yeah, so I think that a lot of times there was this notion of um, you're saying a show in a place that is relatively diverse and you're making a choice to not have it be diverse. And I think that, I think just in general, like when you don't see yourself reflected that much, it is a very difficult thing to watch a show and be entertained by it. You know, you created girls when you were 24. Twenty three is when I started. So having this time to like reflect back on like your work and like the importance of girls and like what is symbolized is like how do you how do you view it under the lens of white privilege, if you will, and outside of that lens, like taking the criticism and also like not looking at it through the lens of criticism.
3: Well, it's interesting. It's like I never really felt criticized because I felt like it was people expressing their opinions in a really important and valuable way like I never felt defensive about it and if you look back through my interviews I don't know I'm sure that I tried to phrase it different ways and I succeeded and I failed but I don't think that there was any time I was like hey guys this is unfair yeah. Like that was never my perspective from right. the minute that it started but it's interesting like you said the thing like to do something in a borough like that and to make a choice not to make it diverse and it's like because I was 23, because I was coming out of such a specific kind of childhood in, like, Manhattan private mm-hmm. schools and then a liberal arts school in Ohio that, like, who, like, you know, they bless them, they try with diversity, but that's not really what's going down. It's, yeah. like, there was just a certain amount of ignorance. It's, like, I almost wasn't making a choice because choice informs knowledge. Right. And choice implies knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so it's, like, I was literally, like, I'm half Jewish and I'm half Christian. And two of these girls are Jewish and two of them are Christian. Like, it was— The most personal expression, Mm -hmm. and I had no sense the world would see it, so I had no sense of what the world wanted from me. And I also, at that point, to be totally frank, didn't have enough women of color in my life talking to me about what representation meant to them Mm -hmm. for me to even understand that my show would be seen and have that kind of power. And so, like, everything that happened getting a pilot deal, getting to make a pilot, getting to make a show like, all of it was shocking, and then When I realized it had the power to either make people feel included or excluded, that was shocking, but I took it very, very seriously as Mm -hmm. a job. And so even if I couldn't change the essential DNA of girls, and we did try to bring in interesting, you know, actors of color and people with really different diverse perspectives, but it was like the DNA of the show, which was these four girls had at that point been baked in, but it was like— I understood, and Jenny and I have said this publicly a lot, like, we're not going to make another show that has, like, four white girls on the on the <laughs> yeah. poster. That's not something that we're interested in doing. And because now we've been very deeply educated about how much representation matters. And so, like, the two things I'd want to stress would be, like, I'm not using my youth as a defense. I'm just saying that I think I was in the position that a lot of young white people are in, which is just, like, a lack of knowledge and a lack Mm -hmm. of understanding. And even though I came from this super liberal family and this super liberal background, and I could give you the buzzwords, like, there was something deeper Mm -hmm. that I didn't understand. And I'm not presuming that I understand it all now, but I'm presuming that I understand a lot more. And then the other aspect of it was just that, you know, that criticism really hit home for me. And I've tried to Especially Lenny Letter, which is Jenny in my feminist newsletter. I mean, Which is great. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about another aspect of girls, which is the nudity on the show, which I think is empowering and I think it is great. And I think everyone struggles with body issues, but I think women in particular, because of the media, struggle with body issues even more. And I'm wondering, do you feel like more in tune with your body now that you've, dealt with it in such a public way? It's a
3: really interesting question and it's a complicated answer because I've written about this publicly, but I've also, I have a chronic illness, which is endometriosis, which is, you know, a reproductive illness that affects one out of every 10 women. And so at the same time that I was sort of like embracing my sexuality in this like super Mm -hmm. public and open way, I was also experiencing like a lot of chronic pain and multiple surgeries and going through the experience of really kind of like having my body betray me in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways and like like you I'm a workaholic and I'm someone who likes to feel productive and engaged at every hour of the day and illness doesn't always allow you to do that and so it's been an interesting thing which is like I don't give a shit if somebody calls me fat there's literally no part of me that has like I just don't have a feeling left about that (laughs) I don't have a feeling left to give yeah but my struggle's really been much more with like taking care of myself and understanding that my body is like the only one that I have at this point, mm-hmm. until we really enter the Westworld universe. Yeah, I
1: think w- when it comes to, to body and health, I think it is it's a very touchy issue, I think, with women, because there is this notion that, like, for instance, when women get pregnant, it's always like, look how quick they bounce back. It's four weeks and they they look great. And it's going to take me like six years. <laughs> I'm going to like have all my children and then
3: like maybe take another six years. <laughs> There's no way. And I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, you see them from behind and you don't, they're pregnant and they turn around. Like, I'm going to gain a solid 90 pounds.
1: Like, I just like, I know myself. Like, I know what's going to yeah. go down. Yeah. But I think there is this notion that, like, Women, for some reason, there's this pressure on us, like whenever we have like some sort of like health issue that we have to bounce back quickly. And like if we don't, like when Hillary got pneumonia from like literally touching everyone's hand, which is what happens when you touch everyone's hands. You know,
3: it's interesting. Like I had to skip an event a few weeks ago. Like I just wasn't I wasn't feeling my best and I skipped a a book event. And. I got like a message back on Twitter from this woman who was like, you can't sit and sign books. She was like, I was back at work from my C-section after six days. And I was like, (sighs) that's not something to be proud of. That's like the damage of this country. It's like everyone's in a constant contest like especially when you Mm -hmm. work in TV and film everyone's like I only slept three hours they're like all I've had to eat for three days is coffee I haven't seen my wife in six weeks and it's like none of those things are things to brag about you're
1: gonna get a divorce you have an eating problem and you're gonna die at 60 because you don't sleep
3: yeah 100% like everything you just described is setting your life up to be a fucking failure like (laughs) and I find myself getting into it like I broke my arm this summer my elbow when I was doing girls and I went back to work that same day and I was like I went back to work the same I broke my elbow, and then later I was like bragging about it, and I was like, "That wasn't that cool." Yeah, <laughs> it's not actually that cool. Like, you should go home and fucking rest your elbow. Yeah, <laughs> that you broke, you psycho. And like, you were running clearly on like the adrenaline of like having like broken your elbow. Like, so Wait, how did you break your elbow? I tripped on my flip flop. It was pretty sexy. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I was like, I wanted to be able to be like, I was doing my own stunts, yeah. and it was literally between scenes, and I was like walking, and like couldn't like I like don't, I'm not um, no. good at walking. Talking. I just like and then at first it looked so funny that everyone around me was laughing. And then I like went to the hospital and they were like it's broken. <laughs> and it like swelled like the size of a grapefruit. And then I was back at work like, what up guys? And everyone was like kind of looking at me like I was insane. Right. And it was insane. <laughs> but also you have a job to get done.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now uh let's talk about your work because you're very prolific. I think like um, like you. myself, we like podcasts, we write, we yep. perform, we do all that stuff. And I think one of the th- through lines I see in your work, which I think is probably similar in mine, is that there's, like, this need to connect. You know, I'm thinking about, like, obviously your character, Hannah, and obviously writing a book is a way of communicating to the reader. And I think it's different for every person why they feel this need, because I think it's something that everyone feels. Yeah. But I think performers and artists in particular feel it more. Yeah. And... I know for me, I'm always kind of like even, you know, when I feel like I'm connecting with someone, I'm always feeling like, but it still doesn't feel like full and authentic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm wondering, is that, am I right in assuming that is a theme in your work? And if so, like, has there ever been a time where you try too hard to connect with someone and kind of blew up in your face and just kind of like curious about what you feel are some running themes that you deal with?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think so much of it is about just feeling less alone Mm -hmm. and feeling like people are understanding you and really understanding you. Like, what's better than feeling understood? Almost nothing, even if it's just with, like, your little sort of group of people who, like, even, you know, I have, like, a text chain going with four of my closest friends after the election. It's just, like, a safe space to express our anxiety and our fear and our pain. And, like, nothing's ever been more necessary to me than that. And, like, just that little area where, like, you know you're going to be safe and you know nobody's going to tell you you're an idiot or tell you to go fuck yourself. Like, yeah. that's so important. And then in terms of trying to connect and it blowing up in my face, like, I definitely, I've always been, like, a pretty trusting person. Like, I've always mm-hmm. been someone who, like, if someone sits down across from me, at, like, you know, a group hang at a bar and starts telling tell me about their breakup, I'm, like, there with my arms open and, yeah. like, suddenly they're crying in my arms and I don't know how it <laughs> happened. And, like, I remember, like, two and a half years ago or something, I, like, was trying to get a cab. Uber was not yet popping off mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. And I accepted a ride. Like, I was, like, waiting outside, like like, Real Food Daily, my favorite vegan restaurant, and I was trying to get home, and I, like, just, like, accepted a ride from these, like, two cool-seeming, like, queer boys who were like, we work at the Jonathan Adler store. And I was like, yeah, great. And, like, again, later, I was like... What
1: are you smoking, young this lady? This is why horror movies are always star white women like you. Because you don't get in the car with two dudes and just go, yeah. this is going to be chill. I
3: was like, they're gay. I was like, they're gay. <laughs> you know who else was gay? Jeffrey Dahmer. And he <laughs> ate people. So, yeah, it's true. White They do star white women just like me. And I'm the one. And I would not be the one who lived to yeah. the end.
1: So, uh, did you meet your boyfriend under less scary terms or was it also like one of these like oh here's a guy i'll just go talk to him oh no
3: we were introduced by his sister which i would argue is like the safest way to meet someone she was my friend already and she set us up on a blind date so i was like pretty unafraid and i also like had a lot of friends like mike berbiglia who's a comedian who's a good friend of both of ours was a big part of introducing us and he was the one who like jack was told to email me and then mike was like no but actually do it like she's actually not she is insane but like she's not insane (laughs) So that's how we met, and it's been almost five years. But there wow. were plenty of gentlemen before that that I was like, you live in a van? That's great by me. <laughs> like, there was nothing in my dating history that would have, like, implied that I would, like, date anybody who was, like, a reasonable, like, adult member of society.
1: Real quick, you're winding stuff down, girls. Oh, yeah. We're... Locked our episodes and we start airing on February 12th, our final season. This is very exciting and also kind of bittersweet. You've written a book. You've done movies. Like, what is—what's on the horizon for you? Like, what are you— I'm finishing up another book right now. It's fiction.
3: Thank you so much. It's a fiction book, so it's something I'm really excited about. And then— We're continuing to expand Lenny, so we have a Lenny book imprint. Our first book is an amazing book of short stories by a writer called Jenny Zhang called Sour Heart that's Mm -hmm. going to be coming out um, this year, and then... We're expanding Lenny with um, a series of short films that we're doing with HBO and just trying to really make, like, sort of spread the aesthetic and vision of Lenny, like, across platforms. Cool. And then Jenny Connor, who's my um, creative partner, and I, are work, we're developing a few TV things and a few feature things and just going to, like, see what falls into place first. And I'm going to do something I haven't done in a long time, which is not know what's coming. That's exciting. It is. It kind of makes you want to barb yeah. every morning, but, like,
1: it is also <laughs> exciting. And so you also have your own podcast, Women of the Hour. Thank
3: you for shouting it out. Yeah, I do. And Mm -hmm. it's our second season and sort of like a feminist variety show. Mm -hmm. Like we just try to really—we'll pick a topic, you know, a a sexy, fun topic like illness or grief. And then (laughs) we'll just talk to a bunch of different women about their stories and interweave them and all share something that's personal. And I love it because it's just a way to hear a lot of different women's voices and to get educated about a bunch of different issues And it's not like we wouldn't be opposed to having celebrity guests. But that's Mm -hmm. like the real focus is just like women across the country and their resilience and their experiences. And it's just really fun. I'm excited because we have an episode coming up about cats. Oh, okay, It's our most cheerful episode. So specifically about cats. Yeah. And just like women's relationship to cats, cat ladies, cat stuff. Because we found this old recording my mom and me of me at age eight doing my own radio show exclusively about cats called the Lena Dunham (laughs) cat radio show. And so that is like the
1: impetus for our cat episode. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for your work and thank
3: you. I'm grateful for yours and I'm grateful to be here on so many white guys. Yeah.
1: And like, even though like there have been points where I'm like, Oh, I don't agree with what this thing on girls in terms of like race or whatever. I do think that having work that makes you want to have a discussion I think is extremely valuable. And I think your work does that. And I think it does it really well. I think people assume you like want to be surrounded by like yes people. I'm like,
3: what's fun about that? Like you want to be surrounded by people who like challenge you and push you and ask you to be better. And like, it's funny. Someone once was like, do you feel like you have too many yes people in my life? I'm like, I would kill for some yes people. I have so (laughs) many no people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for challenging us and presenting a perspective perspective. That is hasn't been seen before, Thank and you for, the same for, thing. for sticking with it, and you know, especially when like men are always allowed to do whatever the fuck they want, and no one ever really questions it or challenges it. That's I appreciate so nice. that.
3: That means so much. I was just looking at the Golden Globes, and then I saw like Mel Gibson's nominated for a million things, which, which is I was, like, like
1: so gross.
3: And I'm just like, it's so crazy that like Mel Gibson gets like make those like insane movies and like scream about Jewish people yeah. in the street, and then he gets to like make <laughs> a movie, and everyone's like, but he's an artist, and it's like. If a woman went on a rant about Jews, yeah. like she would literally be like put in a dungeon, no career. a woman in Hollywood went on a rant about Jews outside of moon shadows in Malibu, like
1: <laughs> no, yeah, and it's also like for fucking hacksaw Ridge, yeah, like. What is that even about? It's just another war movie, which I'm not. No one, please tweet me. You're crazy. I'm not anti-war movies, but I do think there is a. Isn't it so sad that
3: we live in a world where you have to be like, guys, I'm not anti-war movies.
1: (laughs) No, but it's just like another like white dude jerking off about like the heroism of like another white man. I'm like, I could not be less interested in that.
3: Me too. I literally was like, even the title, like, Andrew Garfield's a wonderful actor. I can't wait to watch him in something. It's not going to be this. Yeah. That would be a
1: $17 nap for me. (laughs) The expensive nap. Yeah. Okay, so we got to get out of here, but let's go take a very expensive nap and watch uh, (laughs) Hacksaw Ridge. (laughs) Yeah, let's go watch Hacksaw Ridge. (laughs) We're going to do it together. (laughs) We're headed to that theater right now. (laughs) Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you. Oh, boy. Hacksaw Ridge, huh? That should be your line for, like, asking dudes out. (laughs) So, you like Hacksaw Ridge? You just stand outside the movie theater, and as the guys, like, file out, you're like, Hacksaw Ridge?
2: Hacksaw Ridge? Hacksaw Ridge?
1: Hmm? Hacksaw Ridge? Sexy.
2: Um, Peeps, want to throw to the credits?
1: No. Oh. The So Many White Guys team includes Rachel Neal, hey boo, Joanna Saltaroff, hey Bay, Jim Point, hey boo boo, Paula Schumann, Isaac Jones, and Joe Clord. They are my oceans. One, two, three, four, five, six. Ocean six, baby. And our theme song was written by Alex Overington and sung by a bunch of white dudes. Check out the WNYC Studios Twitter account to see goofy photos of me and Lena Dunham from today's interview. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DopeQueenFeeds. And don't forget, you can always find us on WNYC.org, Google Play Music, and iTunes. Hashtag YQY. <laughs> I'm talking about Lena Dunham. Shit, I, I fucked up her name
0: <laughs> Lerna Durnum <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lerna Durnum <laughs>